In official Borderland Training Podcast Jumbo Edition, talking about the California Chicano Street Gang Connection. This is Nathan Wegar with the official podcast for Borderland Training. Today we're going to be talking about the street gang hotline in California, and more specifically, the Chicano street gangs. And the reason why we're going to be discussing, in particular, the California Chicano street gangs is because they are having more and more influence because of a conflation of a variety of different factors. What I'd like you to do for the most part is ignore what you might have seen on gangland. Some of it's good, some of it's very out of date, and even what I'm going to be telling you right now will probably be out of date in a week because gangs, much like insurgencies, are constantly changing and the anti-gang task force and law enforcement are constantly changing tactics in response. So it's this back and forth. That being said, some aspects do tend to stay the same, and I've had experience with both having lived in both Los Angeles and up north. And so I can speak from both sides of the fence on this. So let's start at the beginning. In Southern California, there was already a long history of Hispanic street gangs. That's where the whole Cholo Zoot Suit thing started. It started in East Los Angeles. And what would happen is as they got locked up and sent to prison, or in this case, California Youth Authority, CYA, 13 gang members from all over Los Angeles were in the uh, Tracy, what is now the Tracy Detention Center for Adults, but at the time, was a youth detention center. And it was 13 members. If I remember right, all of them were Mexican except for one who was a Croatian dude named Pigleg. And they formed the Mexican Mafia or La M or sometimes they call it the Black Hand. And their number was 13. And they called themselves Sureños. And the story goes that basically they were trying to protect themselves in jail from the larger white or black prison gangs, and at the same time, rep where they're from. Now, this was in 1957. After a period of time, a lot of these, uh, these it's kind of an interesting dynamic because the culture and the, the politics of the prison gangs switched over time. So in the beginning, a lot of the new immigrants, the new Mexican immigrants were in the South. And after a time, these southern uh, Mexican immigrants and prison gangs, in particular, in the south, they became more urbanized. Being a cholo was considered more of a Chicano thing versus a Mexican-Mexican thing. That was just kind of the culture. And so as new migrant farmers started coming in, over time, they began to move up north, particularly the, the uh, Central Valley. So like the 209 area code, Stockton, Modesto. Um, Turlock, and there's also a pretty heavy chapter over in Oakland. Now, as the South became more urbanized, you had migrant farmers that would tend to go more north, particularly in the Central Valley, because they'd be working in the fields, picking fruit and all that kind of stuff. And what happened was, in prison, the Northerners would get, basically, they'd get called paisas all the time, which just means it's kind of like a bumpkin, a hillbilly. And they would get picked on by the South. They were basically getting hit up by their own people a lot, which kind of defeated the original purpose of the Mexican Mafia. 
And so it came to a head supposedly in 1968. But the story goes that it was over a pair of shoes. Somebody stole somebody's shoes. And so they officially split. I'm telling you that that is the, that's the story. I don't know if it's true. And to be honest, a lot of people just have no idea. It's just kind of one of those stories of gang lore that can be neither confirmed nor denied. But that's, that's the basic story behind it. In prison, you don't have a lot of material possessions, so it's more about respect. And the small number of material possessions that you do have, well, it becomes a big deal. And stealing somebody's shoes and making them walk around barefoot is just adding insult to injury. So the northern migrant workers broke off and they formed Nuestra Familia and they took red as their color because the Mexican mafia at the time had taken blue as their color. And this is a theme that you're going to see over and over. The first prison gang to pop up or the first street gang to pop up generally seems to take blue because nobody really wants to wear a bunch of red. And then the second prison gang that pops up in uh, distinction to them, they typically take the red. And the northern prison gang, they took the number 14 for Norte, and it stands for North, or the letter N, N. So you have la M and you have N. You also have some allies. There's Nuestra Raza. There's a northern faction. But for the most part, Nuestra Familia is, is the big dog up north. Now, it's really important that you notice that California is not just divided by geographic lines. It's also divided by colors. Even more so than the black gangs. A lot of the black gangs, they're not repping the colors as much anymore. But on the streets, north and south, red and blue. It still very much applies. And, and it's spreading to other places too that normally didn't focus as heavily on colors. And we'll cover that in a little bit. Now, now the street gang counterparts are the Sureños for the Mexican Mafia. And then you have the Norteños for Nuestra Familia. Now being a Norteño typically means that you are allied with Nuestra Familia. But the reverse is not true. If you join Nuestra Familia on the inside, that doesn't necessarily mean you're part of a clique when you get back out. Prison is where everything is controlled. You can't escape anybody in prison because eventually that's where you're going to end up, and that's where scores get settled. And despite what they say, there's not a lot of loyalty in between cliques. Originally, the North and the Northern gangs were fairly united. And the reason why is because the southern gangs always had more, because there was always new recruits coming up north from Mexico. The, uh, the Cholo culture, the gangs down there would take them in, they'd get them jobs, or uh, have them doing low-level work, and eventually they'd take them into the circle. So they were never hurting for recruits. Whereas up north, they tended to be more Americanized, a couple generations, three generations, even four generations deep. A lot of them didn't even speak Spanish very well. And they also tended to take in non-Mexican members. And that's why a lot of the southern gangs accuse the northern gangs of hanging out with the blacks or acting black. They call blacks mayates. Very racist gangs. Northern gangs are a little bit more friendly with blacks and sometimes they ally with people like the Crips. The blood's less so, but I've seen both. Uh, a lot of that stuff, a lot of those allegiances are fluid. But over time, the northern gangs fight against each other too. Most of the gang violence in Stockton, California, which has a higher homicide rate than Detroit at the moment, is uh, between northern gangs, which in where I was would have been considered a, a punishable offense. So if you went to prison and they ask you ahead of time, you know, did you do any red on red? Then if you answer yes and you can't say why, then you could get a hit put out on you. But that's becoming less organized, especially after the whole uh, Black Widow operation 
that recently took out a lot of the members and split them up. But the Southern gangs have always had more, and so they've always been more divided. The unity happens in prison. On the street, it's all the different cliques fighting each other. There used to be a line across uh, California, and it, it changes a lot. Somebody tried to say, I've heard it said that it was Salinas. It's not, because there's actually a major Nuestra Familia chapter there. I've heard people try to say it's Fresno up north. It's not. And the reason for that is because there's not only a lot of Norteños there, there's a lot of F-14 Bulldogs. And that's this little, they're affiliated with Norte, but they're not strictly Norteños. They, they stick to themselves when they go to prison. There's some people that have put it at about Delano. You know, there's some people that put it at Bakersfield, which I think is way too far south. But regardless of where you put the line, it is more common, or it was more common, to see Southerners up north than it was Northerners down south, because the immigration rates just didn't compare. In fact, it was such a non-contest that the people down in the south, the Sureños, typically wouldn't even worry that much about colors. They'd wear pretty much whatever they wanted. And the reason for that is because it was just taken for granted that you were a Sureño. It was click versus click, set versus set. And again, the North was slightly more organized at one point, but like anything else, organizations fracture, and so now there's a lot of red on red. A lot of the unity happens because of the drug trade. So a lot of the Southern gangs, the vast majority of them, almost all of them with very few exceptions, take the 13 because they pay tribute or taxes off their drugs to uh, the Mexican mafia. There's one gang, I, t I take that back, there's not one gang, but the one main gang was Maravilla, and they're not just one gang, they're several cliques. And that's, Maravilla is what East LA used to be called. And Maravilla supposedly got a green light put out on them because they refused to pay taxes to the Mexican mafia. That's a common misconception, and you'll read that in a lot of places. But actually, what really happened was, that's L.A. County politics. At the time during the green light years, if you want to call them that, Maravilla and its various cliques controlled L.A. County jail. So they could pull that off, but when they hit state, a lot of that stuff disappeared. And you'll see Maravilla rolling with uh, the Mexican mafia in prison. You know, they're just con they're considered sureños. I hear that a lot, and that's just not what... <laughs> That's not how it is. There are a couple sets that have refused to pay taxes on the inside as well, but they're so, it's so specific that it's almost not even worth mentioning. And in the north, the Norteños paid in Nuestra Familia as well. In fact, you'll have uh, captains that may be allied with guys on the inside, and they actually have to pay, even if they don't sell drugs, they have to pay 300 a month just for dues. Now, obviously, the prison gangs aren't going to allow that kind of bullshit beef on the streets to come into prison because it gets guards interested and it kills business. And prisons, prison gangs are a business. The prison gangs run California. And causing too many problems with business or refusing to take part in the business when you're told to can result in a green light. And a green light is basically just a prison ordered hit. Just to kind of cover some of the differences in culture that was going around when I was younger is down south, you'd see a lot of Dickies, Ben Davis, they'd wear Nike Cortez or Chucks. You'd see Pendleton shirts buttoned all the way up or pulled apart. You know, all that classic crap that you see in movies like Colors and all that. Well, that was true. Lately, in uh, kind of the late, late 90s, early 2000s, you started to see Cholo style kind of become mainstream. 
he started to see better looking tattoos. A lot of them had those crude prison tattoos. And now there's tattoo guys like Mr. Cartoon that are doing a lot of the, he's doing a lot of the new rappers and stuff. And they've really taken fine line to this next level. Old school cholos, they have all the shitty work done on their arm. And it's just, it's not as stylized. But they do stuff like creasing their pants. A big thing was using salt water because if you used starch over time, it would wear out your pants. Sureños typically had three dots. It means uh, mi vida loca. I've heard people say that Sur stood for Southern United Raza. Yeah, yeah I guess that's possible. I mean, you, you start to think of cool little acronyms and shit like that. But I don't remember anything like that. It, it's no different than up north and Norteños would typically wear different brands. They thought the Cholo brand, they would call Sureño Scraps. And a lot of other names. I mean, just all kinds of retarded names. But they would call them Scraps or Scrapas and all kinds of other stuff. And so they might wear stuff like K-Swiss. Kill Scraps when I see Scraps. And stuff like that. They'd have 14 on their letterhead belts, so those canvas belts, they have a little block of metal with one initial, and they'd get it with N or 14, or they'd wear red bandanas. You'd see Mongolians a lot, and what that is, is you'd have the head mostly shaved, except for this patch in the back that was left to grow long, and they would typically braid it. Sometimes they'd braid it in one braid, sometimes they'd braid it in four, and sometimes they'd just leave it out. And whereas uh, Sureños, they rocked the hairnet and other kinds of looks for a long time. And then more recently, they started doing the bald head thing. Some people said it came out of prison. I've heard, I've heard stories about, oh, so they couldn't be identified during prison riots. I don't know if any of that shit's true. I don't think anybody else does either. Point is, is it kind of grew out of that prison culture. Sureños are the type that you're more likely to see them with the white socks that are pulled all the way up. They don't sag their pants very much. You might see them wearing suspenders. You'll see the beanies pulled down to their eyes. That's all very classic, stereotypical cholo. Now, in Cali, though, that look is frequently tied with the South. Yes, you'll get some old school guys up north, especially in the 209 area. There's a big chapter in Oakland, and they tend to have adopted more of that black culture. But most of the older guys, they, they just didn't dress like that. You'd see a lot of the 49er jerseys. Down south, you'd see a lot of the Raiders jerseys. And the southerners that would move up north, you'd see a lot of them wear like Dallas because it was blue. Now, Norteños have their cliques, but they usually just claim north. They like to think of themselves as a family, <laughs> a very dysfunctional family. But none of them have reached the level of notoriety that some of the southern gangs have. All of them are Sureños. But some of them have become forces in their own right. Two examples of that are 18th Street and Florencia Trece. One thing to realize about California gangs is that the Mexican gangs in particular, especially down south, are extremely racist. The blacks and uh, the Mexicans do not get along at all. In fact, that was one thing that really surprised me about Albuquerque when I moved out here, is it's not quite that same culture. And that case was also extended against other Mexicans. This whole gang debate, this culture, this dialogue that's taking place is really about who gets to call themselves Mexican. It's an identity thing, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But 18th Street, I've heard some people say that they started in East L.A. That's, that's bullshit. They started in Rampart District. And what it was is... They lived on 18th Street and they wanted to be part of this other street gang called the Clantons. 
And ironically, the Clantons took the number 14. And this just shows you how completely out of the loop Sudanios are in LA regarding Norteños, because unless they go to prison, they almost never see them. They see other Sudanio gangs. Well, the 18th Street, they actually tried to rep the Clanton, but they didn't have, uh, they didn't have pure Mexican heritage. They were mixed. They had other members. And so they weren't allowed to uh, claim them. So what they did is they formed their own, 18th Street, because they were off of 18th Street. And 18th Street became huge. And you'll see 18th Street stuff all over the freaking country now. And the reason why is because they let in members of other ethnicities. They allowed blacks in. They even allowed Native Americans in. They allowed white people in. And so they spread. They spread exponentially. Even though, strictly speaking, they are a Sureño gang. They were also one of the few gangs that would strategically send people, cells if you want to call them that, captains, to other parts of the country in other states. And it was to expand their, their hands in the cookie jar in the drug trade. And just like anything else, a lot of those gangs expanded and then you end up with a lot of hybrid gangs. So you'll see a lot of Cali gangs that are in Chicago and other places. And that's true of Bloods and Crips with the black gangs as well. They start to ally themselves with the folks and the peoples. And that culture gets kind of mixed. And so the same rules don't apply as they did in Los Angeles. But that's just a side note. 18th Street are known for putting out green lights on people that refuse to pay taxes. And 18th Street themselves pay taxes to the Mexican Mafia. And this is true even of the gangs that get sent, like the satellite gangs that get sent to other states. In 94 alone, there were 30 homicides being prosecuted by the Los Angeles District Attorney that were specifically 18th Street that put green lights out and executed, basically, guys that failed to pay taxes. But this just shows you how this street gang connection tying back into prison really, it extends the reach of California prisons past what people would have conceived before. Another Southern gang that's it's really well known because of how vicious they are is Florencia. And they originally started in the Florence Firestone District, although you can see them pretty much all over Los Angeles now in different cliques and even in other places. But Florence 13, their big thing is going against blacks. They are at heart, aside from 18th Street, being one of their chief rivals, they are at heart a racist gang. It's either 18th Street or kill a black guy, point blank. And there was actually a rash of shootings in South Central, now South LA. And it was, it was like old black ladies just blowing Florencia members away with like shotguns and shit because they were breaking into their homes to kill a black person. So those, those, two, those two cliques within the Sureños are the more well-known ones, 18th Street are likely to be multiracial, and their rivals, Florencia, are very likely to be racist. Sureños tend to be racist in general, but Florencia in particular is basically, they're basically trying to ethnically cleanse their neighborhoods. And a lot of that shit is taking over South LA now because the demographics are shifting from mostly a black neighborhood to now a 50-50 with Hispanics. Okay, so part two. Remember, so far we've covered there's a north and a south. The south tends to stay south. The north tends to stay north. Now, because of immigration, this all changes. So let's, uh, let's recap just a bit here. Initially, you had the southerners, and they were the new guys on the block. They were the immigrants. They became more Americanized, and so migrant farm workers started moving up north. 
Then they became the immigrants. Then it switched again. The Northerners are more Americanized because they've been there multiple generations. And as immigration, both legal and illegal, exploded on the South, you get a lot of these Sureños, and this is all post-early 90s, you get a lot of Sureños that were not Mexican. You know, they were from Guatemala and other places. And I'm not going to touch on uh, MS-13 right now because that's its own. You could do a whole podcast just on them. I'm going to stick with the uh, mainly Mexican prison gangs. But what would happen is you would get Sureños that were not, they weren't tied to L.A. specifically. They would claim the 13, except they would claim it up north. How did this happen? Well, a big reason why it happened is because of that border connection. Sureños would typically go down south to evade a warrant or they'd get deported and they would pop back up or they'd stay in Mexico. They'd pop back up in Albuquerque. They'd pop back down. It was a very fluid border. And so Sur extended into the south. So you would get Mexicans that would have that affiliation and they would skip LA and they'd end up immigrating into Northern California. Now the Northerners had a saying that it's not where you're from, it's where you're at. Why? Because they take that dividing line very seriously. The Sureños that were repping south but lived up north had this identity crisis because they didn't fit in down south, but they were repping south, but they were living up north. And this this extended into prison too because they would get used for a lot of the bitch jobs. So the Norteños went from this odd fresh migrant worker to very uh, Americanized. And then the Sureños did it again. The Sureños came over, they were new, then they were Americanized. And now they're new again and pushing up north and they don't have that Los Angeles connection. And so you get a lot of the Norteños calling them wetbacks and this and that. A lot of them didn't dress with that same Cholo style because they had that very fresh from Mexico look. And they saw Norteños as almost like an alien culture. Like, they don't speak Spanish, they act black, and they're not accepted by either side fully. And it's this weird identity crisis that I talked about earlier. It's who gets to lay claim on being Mexican. And there have been, not revolutions, but there have been attempts, mainly in prison, because they have their own constitutions, they teach history, they teach classes on how to teach you to write really tiny to pass hidden messages and shit like that. And a big thing is history. So a lot of the Sureños get taught this alternative Mexican history, you know, that we took over the land and it used to be part of Atzlan. And you'll see a lot of those themes on art in Los Angeles. So you'll see a lot of these murals and there'll be, they will be untouched. They won't have any graffiti on them, not even by the black gangs. And you might ask, well, why? Why wouldn't even rival gangs paint on that? Well, it's because of uh, the ties to the Mexican mafia and that history and that pride they're trying to instill in their recruits. And the northern gangs, you know, Nuestra Familia, they would do the same thing. They would take the Huelga bird, which was the bird of Cesar Chavez. Supposedly some members met with him, and although he never endorsed them, they, they rocked that bird and they try to get in touch with their migrant history. So you have both of these sides trying to claim that Mexican heritage, who's the more authentic Mexican. And then you've got these actual Mexicans that are popping up north claiming the South, and they don't get accepted by either side. Now, the interesting thing about this, though, is that anytime there are these rival sects, there's going to be an increase in gang violence. And so previously, North and South might never even meet except once they're in prison. 
But with this new influx of immigration, you're seeing not just south on south and north on north, but you're seeing south on north all the way up north. And more than that, you're seeing north and south all the way down in Mexico. And this is where this is where it starts to get interesting. This is a new development with the war on drugs and the larger Mexican cartels basically fracturing and vying for power. Prior to this, you had the southern gangs and the Mexican mafia in particular, and yeah, they had their Mexican connection. You know, Sur extended all the way down into Mexico and even further sometimes. But as the uh, cartels began to balkanize and become less powerful on an individual basis, they extended their power by extending their drug trade to people that they typically wouldn't have done business with. And that includes the North. Why? Because the North was big on methamphetamines. And the, uh, the cartels are starting to delve more into meth than they did before. Well, up North, they've always been doing meth more. I'd never seen a focus on meth down South the way I did up North. And a big reason for that was because the North had the highest concentration of meth labs. So they made a lot of their own meth. And the reason for that is that in the 209, you had all these hills. That's where they'd have a lot of their meth labs and just make tons of meth. Also, Nuestra had a, uh, a reputation for standing by their product. They didn't cut into their stuff like a lot of people did. You were getting pure product. And the cartels knew that reputation that they had, and so they expanded their business activities with not just the South, but the Northern prison gangs. And I thought this was interesting because this is, you know, this is stuff that wasn't going on when I was younger. And I realized that when in Mexico you see, let's see, 14 or XIV on the walls in Juarez, and that would have been unthinkable. You just wouldn't see the north or presence from the north that far south. But this new cartel connection changes everything. For one thing, it makes the north more powerful. Why? Because they have drug connections now that they never had before. More drugs, more weapons. More weapons and more drugs, more power, more power, more recruits. What this also does is it extends the violence all throughout the state cartel-related, and prison gang-related. Why? Because now you've got North and South competing all through the state down to the border. This means that not just California gangs, but cartel influence that was previously relegated to the Southwest of the United States is being pushed to other places, uh, such as Chicago. Before, yeah, you get these satellite gangs and maybe some hybrid gangs out there, but it wasn't the same level of uh, organization. You know, the Chicago gangs wouldn't stand for that shit, and they'd basically just be their own little thing. But now, you got cartel connections. And with the cartels, you got a lot of that paramilitary stuff going on. So you've got MS-13 and all these other guys, and they are providing services to the cartels. So basically, this is extending the survival of the cartels. It's going to make smaller elements of the cartels more powerful than they normally would be because they're taking part in that U.S. drug trade. And it works vice versa for the North and South. They're extending their power and their reach, their global reach, through the cartels. Now, a final consideration that makes this all really interesting is that Al-Qaeda and other Muslim terrorist groups have taken advantage of our porous border. And they've also taken an interest in the drug trade with the cartels. More than that, Al-Qaeda and other Muslim terrorist groups are recruiting, actively recruiting, street gangs. And the reason why is because a lot of prisoners' first contact with Islam is in prison. And so between the collaboration 
and the crossover with the uh, drugs, with the cartels, there's also that prison religion element that they uh, manipulate to their advantage. So the California street gang phenomenon has led to some really interesting developments, and it's led to an increase in violence all across the states. And it's due to the two prison gangs, the uh, soldiers on the ground, so to speak, that work for those prison gangs, so the street gang element, tying into the immigration element, which then tied into the cartel element, which then you add in paramilitaries and uh, Muslim terrorists, and you've got an interesting cocktail. And it's going to be very interesting to see how these different groups and insurgencies start fracturing or changing, morphing into other things. We've got secular criminal insurgencies. So it's going to be interesting to see how these different criminal enterprises actually become more global out of far more humble origins. So that's all I'm going to say on that topic for right now. It's a huge topic, man. Uh, I could talk about this all day long. But it's better to stay with the main details just because gang intelligence and facts about gangs, a lot of that stuff just changes immediately. I see people trying to uh, memorize different hand signs and this and that. And a lot of that is pointless. You can remember the main ones, but for the most part, it's good to stick with the broad points and just kind of be aware of the overarching culture and how it could affect anything from foreign travel to where you live. You know, just be aware of the network, so to speak. It's good to stay current with the latest information, but don't get too caught up in the minutia because a lot of that minutia either is wrong at the time you hear it, will be wrong, or was never right to begin with. You know, there's a lot of false information that's put out too on purpose to try and gain an edge on the gang task force. So that's all I'm going to say about it for today. Hit me up, Nathan at BorderlandTraining.net. If you have any questions or anything like that. And until then, test yourself and achieve mastery. Pandillero loco, en la calle siempre pago. Siempre pago.